Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Marissa Charles and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Marissa Charles. Well, thank you very much and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Dr. Marissa Charles. She is a specialist in family practice, an osteopath who is with the WellMed Clinic at Ingram Park here in Bear County in San Antonio, and we're delighted to have her on board uh, as our co-host on this show. And you seem to be enjoying yourself. It's good to be here, Ron. Yeah, absolutely. As you think about, uh, and we've been spending a lot of time talking about uh, COVID-19 ripping across this country. No, yes, we've absolutely seen some pretty significant changes just in daily life, obviously, but also in the way that we're having to practice and just conduct our daily lives, you know, including wearing masks and washing our hands, you know, 800 million more times a day than we were washing them before. And as a PCP, are you worried about bringing it home with you? Do you you find, and and I've interviewed uh, over the last several months, doctors who get dressed and undressed in their garage. They get home, stripped down throw the clothes in a washer, get dressed, then go in the house. Absolutely. Um, We do a lot. I mean, well, I'll take off my shoes in the garage. Usually what I'll do is just run to the shower, right into the shower as soon as I get home, and um and then continue about you know my you know not not greeting or hugging or because you got little ones touching my daughters and my husband until yeah. I've done that yeah. Well, we're going to welcome to our Women Radio Hotline from uh, down in the great state of Florida, Tampa West Shore, Dr. Osman Ahmed, who has been on this program before. He's a Women Medical Director, always a delight to talk with. He also is an epidemiologist, and we're delighted to have you on board, Medical Director for Population Health management. You're the guy that counts the noses. Dr. Osmond, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I wanted to ask you very briefly, and Dr. Charles and I were uh, talking about this off the air before we got you on, uh, and it's, a, to me, a perfect question for an epidemiologist. Uh, she was asking, why don't I let you ask? Sure. So, Dr. Ahmed, you know, we were just talking about um, this particular coronavirus, the COVID-19, in relation to, you know, how it spread as a pandemic all over the, the world. And um, beyond. And beyond, hopefully not. No, but, um, you know, we've had viruses like this before. You know, we had the SARS, we've had MERS, and a lot of these viruses, although they were, they caused a lot of damage, for example, you know, SARS in China, it never did make it to this pandemic status. And just, you know, wanting to see if you had any opinion regarding um, the way that this particular virus has spread and things that we need to, to watch out for. And learn from. And learn from. I think, uh, thank you for asking this question. I think what uh, what this virus uh, kind of different from other viruses is part of a, a group of viruses we call them coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. The, a lot of them infect animals mainly. So about like 200 of them probably uh, or a little bit more. And then we have four of them that cause the common cold. So we get them, all of us get this other four. But then, you know, have a little bit of a running nose, and a little bit of sore throat, and some aches and pains, and then it goes away. It's self-limiting. And then we have these three last ones, the SARS and the MERS and the uh, 
what we call SARS-2 or COVID-2, COVID-19, the disease itself. So what makes this different is it multiplies very fast and it spreads very fast. So as a frame of reference, like a flu Mm -hmm. will go from one person to another person, like each infected person can infect one or maybe a little bit over one, 1.1, 1.2. And then this virus can infect with that one person, can infect close to three people, two and a half to three. So if you keep this going without social distancing or anything, uh, one person in one month, the models have shown, you can get about 400. For each one person, you get 400 sick in one month. That makes sense because, you know, that one person infects three, then each one of those infects another three, and it goes on down the line. Right. It's like one cat so, ends up producing 300 different cats. Something along those right. lines. Exactly. And then the incubation period is can be very short. That some people can show symptoms within two days, but the max incubation period is from time of getting the virus till the time you show symptoms can go up to 14 days. So if some of these people obviously get infected and start showing symptoms very early, then you you might multiply them more and more and more as you go. And I think the other thing that's very important is um, kind of a duplication, like uh, how long does it take from the cases to double up. So when you start with one and double it to two, it's not a big deal. So the doubling time can be not a big deal for for a one-on-one. But when you have 10,000 and you get to 20,000 or 100,000 and you get to 200,000, it shows that there are a lot of community spread and a lot of um, people susceptible ended up getting sick and then transmit it to other people. And this is why we say many times it's like use the uh, different ways to protect yourself and prevent the spread is the most important tool we have right now. The face mask. I'm sorry, Dr. Ahmed, were you talking about the the face masks? Yeah, I think the masks are important and social distancing are very important, both of them. And I think, uh, you know, different communities... We ended up having sometimes conflicting uh, opinions from different authorities, whether they are local ordinance or whether they are uh, governor's kind of orders in certain states. But I think ultimately it is the people themselves, in my mind, that they should use common sense and protective measures. So they ended up not really spreading it to other people. When you wear a mask, you are helping the other person not getting anything from you in case that you are harboring the virus, but you're not showing symptoms yet. So if everybody does this, then it would be a kind of a uh, 100% sum game, not a zero sum game. So it would be really good for all the mask wearers that they are protecting other people mm-hmm. from anything they might have. It's interesting how a mask has become political, which is just outrageous, but you 
do have a governor in Florida, and there is a president, uh, who have said they're not going to wear a mask, uh, don't need a mask. Uh, and what message does that send? Well, it's obvious. We don't have to debate that. As you take a look at uh, that impact uh, from the standpoint of both an MD and an epidemiologist, do you sometimes just want to stick your head out the window and scream? Absolutely. Because in the last few days, we have seen pretty close to like uh, 3,000 cases like in a couple of days, and the largest number of increases now we are uh, in the state, kind of over 100,000 cases. And it's it's too hard to see the state like this because I think when they relaxed a lot of the measures to kind of contain the virus, especially around uh, uh, Memorial Day, it ended up really having the virus going rampant and going very spreading so fast among people. And obviously the question that a lot of the politicians ended up kind of answering the wrong way is you say we're testing more people. Testing is not can be the only explanation because if if you are testing, you are showing some results of positive testing. Hopefully people are testing the right people that showing some symptoms. But if you are you know, spreading the virus in the community more than it used to be, then you probably explain 80, 90% of the rates and testing can be just explaining at most maybe 10% that showing from testing that wasn't done prior. So to blame what in testing, I don't think it's the right way to talk about it. Well, they're looking for an easy out because they know uh, dropping the prohibition on mixing it up, not wearing masks, forgetting social distancing, uh, was really a time bomb. I, I want to share with you a, a little personal story. We got a call over the weekend uh, from very good friends of ours uh, who have a young girl, eight years old, same age as our daughter, who was spiking a very high fever, and they were having a hard time uh, finding somewhere where they could get a, a, a test to see whether or not uh, she had COVID-19. And we had some folks we called. We got her tested. Uh, turned out negative. And then in the news today, there are reports that some of these tests are giving false negatives. Now, false positive would be one thing. At least you take protection thinking you have it, but a false negative can be even more dangerous. I agree with you, and I think you are seeing the exact same thing that I said for like the last maybe two, three months, that all the testing, whether it's testing for the virus itself, or testing for the sequel of the virus, of the kind of after, what happened after mm-hmm. you really uh, get rid of the disease. So the antibodies testing uh, or the viral testing is not really 100%. I mean, you'll be lucky, if, especially if you get the pharyngeal kind of swab or nasopharyngeal swab that we do most of the time. You'd be lucky to get like a 30% sensitivity, which shows you that 70% probably you wouldn't be able to diagnose and you diagnose 30%. So that's why symptoms in our mind, uh, in the absence of a good test, uh, are more important to really talk about really how people are presenting. Do they look like COVID and even the test is negative or they don't? And the 
interestingly, when you mentioned children, uh, at the beginning of it, these people thought that children are sort of immune, like they don't get it. And right now, we have seen this Kawasaki look-alike disease mm-hmm. in, in children. Right. That, that ended up with huge amount of complications because some of them have heart attacks. And you have a heart attack when you are 10. Ooh. It, uh, That's terrible. It's not good. No. You know? All right, hold on. We're going to come right back to you. And I want to tell you that uh, when you mentioned uh, that 70% number in testing, wow, did you get a reaction from Dr. Charles. You should never play poker, by the way. (laughs) Clearly, never play poker. I'm Ron Aaron. This is WellMed Radio. Dr. Marissa Charles, our co-host, is here. And on our WellMed Radio hotline, Dr. Osman Ahmed. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its emotional support helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866-342-6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. Bada bing, bada boom, welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking on our WellMed Radio Hotline with Dr. Osman Ahmed. He's the WellMed Medical Director at Tampa West Short in Florida. And our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles, is here in our WellMed Radio studios. And uh, Dr. Ahmed, I was saying uh, right before we went to break that uh, Dr. Charles should never play poker because when you mentioned (laughs) that those tests are maybe 30% accurate, it looked as if she'd been shot through the heart. (laughs) Heartbroken. No, no, it's true. And actually, I did want to talk to you a little bit more, Dr. Ahmed. Maybe you could take a moment to explain to our listeners a little bit about the difference between the two different kinds of tests, you know, one being the the PCR testing, and then you also mentioned the serology testing, which are two completely different types of tests, correct? Yes. I think we're talking about acutely infected people, people that just were exposed to somebody, and then now they're starting showing the symptoms. And uh, we we try to just make sure whether they have or they don't have in order to protect other people from from them by isolation, by contact tracing, by so that's you know, the the PCR testing that we normally collect either yeah. in the nares yeah. or in the nasopharyngeal area. So those are the swabs now correct? nasopharyngeal. For us, layman yeah. means you stick that thing up into the middle of our brain. Pretty much. It feels like you're getting a brain biopsy, absolutely. So that it's not just a little down by the end of the nose there. No, no. The nasopharyngeal right. test, does it require you to push the, the nasal swab gently into the pharynx, so right. causing you to gag? I right. mean, it's not a pleasant test. But then, uh, you know what's interesting about that since you mentioned that United Health Group ended up modifying these tests, and the most recent findings when they did a clinical trial on the swabs, they got these shorter swabs, and they tested them, and they were pretty accurate in terms of 
in compared to the longer swaps. So I, I think there is a room to improve the test and even give it to people so they can self-test at home and send it since it doesn't need to be pushed. Yeah, they would never. They would never push it high enough on our own. <laughs> yeah. You know what? No, right. the, the anterior nasal swab does not require you to go quite that I far. Understand. In. Yeah. Those are those are actually much more comfortable and pleasant. The problem at this point is having enough of those to be able to use them to test everybody. So that's another issue. Is just the right. the availability of the different tests and the different swabs and the media that you need to put right. those in. So. Yeah. Um, so, so when the somebody difference between this, uh, mm-hmm. when you asked me yes. a minute ago about the difference between that, the PCR, which really detects uh, the presence of the virus, and the other one that, as we, as all infected people, ended up uh, developing antibodies to fight the virus. There are two types of antibodies. That one immediately after you get infected. When I say immediately, it starts like getting high amounts within a week uh, kind of peaks, and that's what we call IgM. Mm-hmm. So the immunoglobulin M is after a week, and then two weeks from that, like another two weeks to three weeks, you get the IgG, which lasts longer and doesn't drop that fast. So the IgM goes up and reaches a peak faster around a week after you get the infection, and then it drops precipitously within few days, and then you get the IgG, which peaks probably between two to three weeks after the infection, and then it tapers down gradually, so it stays in the bloodstream longer. There are these types of tests that they call them rapid tests, and there are also PCR tests, and the rapid testing is not as good as the ones that they are PCR-based. Uh, from antibodies perspective, even. And, and do so, we know enough yet as to whether or not, if we've had it, uh, our antibodies will be strong enough to fight it off if it hits us again? That's a $1 million question. I wish I knew that. I actually ended up going on this forum that was started by the director of the NIH, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, and he put out a report that everybody in a clinical, in a kind of a clinical study ended up being showing these antibodies after an infection. And this was like maybe 100 people, a study that ended up showing that and it was like a reason to, for everybody to be happy, obviously, because nearly 99% of them, except one person, didn't show these antibodies. However, the research and the studies immediately after that and the forum itself from people that got conflicting results, negative, turning positive, positive, turning negative, positive, turning negative, and turning positive again, it puts us in a catch-22 because I don't know if it's a function of the test itself or it's a function of the uh, detection of these antibodies because of reagents or something else or uh, there's something else wrong with our, how our response uh, of different people to the, to producing these antibodies change from one person to the other. I know there's still so much left, so many questions left unanswered as far as that goes, but um, 
So I had another question for you, Doc. Um, so if a person is exposed um, or say they have a family member who turns up positive, um, how long would you recommend they wait before going and trying to get this type of testing, the PCR testing, for example? Well, I think, I think it depends. The most important thing is to obviously put themselves into kind of a wait kind of period with, the, you know, trying to be isolated and practice all the things we talked about, the personal hygienic things, the social distancing, masks, all that. And I think the other thing is to wait until the max incubation period comes and goes. Like, say, they were exposed, they knew that maybe two days ago, and then they say, well, it's like I don't have symptoms now, give myself another 12 days, and then see whether I develop symptoms or not. And if they don't develop any symptoms, they really don't need to be tested for PCR particularly because they just locked out and then they might have been infected but not diseased but not sick. Right. So infection is just getting the thing in your body. The disease is showing the symptoms. So wait and then wait after the incubation period another two weeks and if they have access to a test that can show them if they have IgG or IgM then they can do this test. If they don't have access then you know they kind of Wait, I guess, wait it out till we have access. Because I think a lot of these tests, people pay for them. And I don't want to say to people that this is available without, you know, you paying for it. So if indeed we're at a point where uh, the disease is cresting uh, and folks are talking about, hey, it's coming back, there's going to be a second wave. We're not done with the first wave. As an epidemiologist, what do you see coming? I think we are still in the first wave, and it is uh, it is fluctuating. It's like we were in the downward trend, and then we kind of, I guess, laxed a little bit, like like you know we are so kind of uh, put put the guard down, put it this way. Exactly. And as a result of this, we might notice a kind of an increase upward uh, in the numbers for the next maybe couple of weeks, one week, two weeks, I hope that we'll go back to the downward trend. And there will be definitely a second wave, that's what I would say. Uh, with the flu around uh, the fall and the winter time, because that's the normal kind of time track, I guess, for a virus right. like corona. So there will be a second wave. Unless we ended up having, before that, uh, immunization that we can give it to everybody, at least in the country, in a very short period of time, which is highly unlikely. Which part is highly unlikely? The development of the the immunization, the shots. It won't be done that quickly. No, it wouldn't be. I was a kid, and I remember uh, when the uh, oral polio vaccine came on, and uh, they lined us all up, every kid in school. School after school after school, you're talking about a similar mass vaccination program. I a, I don't think this one would be like an oral thing. And when you think about about polio, no, that was my only experience. Polio, I understand. Uh, so it would be injectable, right? And because it's injectable, it would be like much harder to have it fast. So it would be something like uh, like similar to smallpox vaccination. 
um, which, you know, A, I don't think the efficacy or the effectiveness of the vaccine would be 100%. Because if you think about other viruses, similar viruses, like uh, flu and all these other, you know, not DNA, but RNA viruses, Mm-hmm. Mostly, the things that we get for them are successful about 60% of the time, in a good day. Sometimes wow. even 40. So, mm-hmm. you are not really developing antibodies in everybody that gets the shot. What made these diseases like polio and, and, uh, and smallpox different is a disease like smallpox, everybody presented with the disease. Here, not everybody presents. Some people are asymptomatic, some people get severe disease and some people are very mild. The other one, you have to show at least the, uh, the source on your body. So you see, people see the rash. The rash is really horrible looking. So it's like, even if you don't have symptoms, you have the rash. All right. But then I have also I, I, I'm, I'm flat out of time. I'm flat right. out of time. I apologize, but we're going to have to no. uh, sure. pick this up another time. But don't hang up. I got a question for you after we're done with the show. Uh, we're looking for a little free advice for all of us. Dr. Asman Ahmed is with us, Wilman Medical Director at Tampa West Shore. Thank you for joining us. And our co-host is a delight to talk with Dr. Marissa Charles. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.